The Old Testament reading today comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a brush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The word of the Lord. Today's psalm is Psalm 93, verses 1 through 5. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thousands of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Lord, your testimonies are completely reliable. Holiness adorns your house for all the days to come. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our New Testament reading today is from Romans, chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Our gospel lesson this morning is from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Church, this is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one else can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wants, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Blessed be God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And blessed be his kingdom, now and forever. Amen. We mention the Trinity a lot during our worship service. You always hear it at least four times, and sometimes, depending on the liturgy, actually a lot more than that. We always start our service with blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We end our service by sending, sending us out saying the blessing of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. It's a good reminder of exactly who our God is, who he's revealed himself to be. And it might seem weird to have a whole Sunday devoted to this one doctrine, right? Except that it isn't, because literally a doctrine is something that is supposed to be taught. It's supposed to be thought about. It's supposed to be talked about. And it's used as a lens and a compass, both for how we look at Scripture and how we look at the world. The idea of this Trinity, this three-in-one God, is never going to be fully comprehensible by human beings. A God who is simultaneously three divine persons, each of whom is God, and yet is one. One being of God. Since God created the universe, he is, in that sense, above it and outside it. And so all we can do is use human words and language and concepts to try to get at this reality of something that is so much bigger 
and more transcendent than we are, that all we can do is try to come close. The idea of three persons in one being is the kind of thing that you can explain it to a little kid and they'd go, oh, okay, I kind of get it. But the older you get and the more, the more mature you get and the more you kind of think about it and try to unpack it, it can kind of hurt your head a little bit. But when we try to think about it as adults, we aren't comfortable with mystery, right? Especially in our Western world. We're just not comfortable with the idea of something that we can't fully understand and put into a nice, neat little box. So why talk about something like this triune God that we worship? Why dive into what it means that God is three beings in one person? Well, there's three reasons to do this. One, if you love someone, you want to know more about them. And the more, than, more that you know about them, the more fully you can love them. And so if this is the God who created the universe and created all things and created you and me, and also the God who came down to redeem us from the sin that we had fallen into and promises to restore all things, if that's who God is, then we should talk about it. We should learn more about him. The second reason to help us distinguish this God, this creator of the universe, the God of the Bible, the second reason to study the Trinity is because it helps us distinguish from all the other false gods out there. Um, this, is, this is not my illustration by any means, but think of it this way. Uh, the, the Secret Service or the FBI or the U.S. Marshals, they all train someone to spot counterfeit bills. And they don't train that person to spot counterfeit bills by having them look at every single possible permutation of a way that someone could fake what a bill looks like. What they do is they have the agent study an actual U.S. bill, learn it inside and out, learn everything about it, every line of ink, every bit of color, everything. Because that way they know it so incredibly well that when any fake comes up against it, they can spot it immediately. And so it's the same with theology. We go in-depth on who the real God is, because it makes it that much easier for us to identify false ones. But the third reason of why we talk about the Trinity is actually because it helps us understand the Bible better. That's what the early church fathers, like Tertullian, the guy who actually popularized the word Trinity, that's what they believed, because Scripture is the basis for all that we do and all that we believe. It's the basis for our, for our life. And so when we, when, we, when we kind of spin out and assemble these doctrines, like the doctrine of the Trinity or substitutionary atonement of Christ. These doctrines are tools mostly to help us understand the Bible better. It's not the other way around. We don't take the Bible and then try to build a nice little series of doctrines out of it. We think about these doctrines because it helps us understand Scripture better. And Scripture is what reveals to us both who God is and how we are to live in light of that. And so the word Trinity expresses who our God is. Tri-unity, three in one. That word Trinity that we use to describe this God of ours. Well, you'll hear, you'll hear non-Christians or you'll hear Unitarians who don't believe this. You'll hear people say, well, this, how can this be true because the word Trinity isn't even found in the Bible? And that's, that's true. The word Trinity isn't found in the Bible. Lots of words aren't found in the Bible. The word Unitarian isn't found in the Bible. The word Bible isn't found in the Bible. Does that mean those ideas don't exist? No, absolutely not. The word Trinity was first used by the father, church father Tertullian sometime in the fourth century AD. And while the word isn't found in the Bible, the concept surely is. And you see it from the beginning of the book to the end. It is absolutely crystal clear in places like Matthew 28, verse 19, where Jesus is giving the great commission to his followers. And he says to them that you are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name 
Singular name, not the names, but in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely clear. It's crystal clear in places like the end of 2 Corinthians, where Paul gives a a benediction to the church at Corinth, and he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. But you can see it in many other places as well. You can see it in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, 1, uh, verses 1 through 3, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And so here, even even in these verses, we see God the Father creating. And he didn't create with his hands, He created by speaking. He created by using a word. At the beginning of the Gospel of John, John refers to Jesus as the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So in Genesis, we see God the Father creating through God the Son. And God the Holy Spirit was clearly there too, hovering over the face of the water, bringing order out of chaos. God the Father creates God the Son uh, through the word of God the Son, And God, the Holy Spirit, interacts with this new creation, covering it. It's the same with our gospel text. At the beginning of John chapter 3, God the Son, Jesus of Nazareth, is talking about being born again by God the Spirit. And he talks about that as the only way to enter the kingdom of the one God. Do you see the idea of this interplay? If you think about it, can you imagine what Nicodemus must have felt like? This teacher of Israel, this wise and learned man, who's sitting there hearing how someone has to be born again. I just want to add this as a little side note. Um, There was a a series, a a free streaming series that came out last year called The Chosen. If you haven't seen it yet, it's absolutely worth it. Uh, I am always very nervous about... Christian-themed entertainment product, but this thing is excellent. And in the, in, in, the, in the scene where Nicodemus is with Jesus, they're on a rooftop, and Jesus is saying to him, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you actually have to be born from above. You have to be born a second time. And Nicodemus is saying, what are you even talking about? And there's a moment where the camera pans over on this rooftop, and you see the stairs leading down to the street. And the apostle John is huddled there on the stairs. He's hiding. And he's furiously scribbling what, what he's hearing down. He's like, this is, this is insane. i got to write this down. And so that's, it's just a, a, a nice little moment. But, but it's easy to imagine what Nicodemus must have felt like, hearing about the idea that someone must be born again of this thing called the Holy Spirit. But this interplay of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this interplay that we see throughout Scripture hinted at and, and teased at in the Old Testament and then fully, fully shown in the New Testament. This is about a God who is in perfect communion with himself. Three persons of God, one being of God, in full and perfect communion with himself. The three persons of God pouring out love for one another. This is our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son glorifies the Father through obedience in the plan of redeeming all things. The Father glorifies the Son. At Jesus' baptism, Jesus comes up out of the water and a voice comes from heaven saying, you are my Son whom I love. 
With you I am well pleased. And then the Spirit glorifies the Father and the Son by descending from heaven to pour himself out on the Son to strengthen him, empower him, and show everyone assembled that he was chosen. And he comes down in the form of a dove. That interplay, this kind of weaving among the Godhead, has been called by by some people actually a a divine dance. It's what C.S. Lewis called it. God the Father envelops his Son with love. God the Holy Spirit covers the Son with love. And God the Son shows forth who God the Father and the Holy Spirit are in, in the incarnate person of Jesus. Lewis said that in Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing or a static thing. He's not an idea. And he's not even one person. He's a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a drama. And the theologian Cornelius Plantiga goes further, saying that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit glorify one another, which means that the persons within God exalt, commune with, and actually defer to one another. Each harbors the other's best interest at the center of his life. The constant movement of of overture and acceptance, each person enveloping one another. So God's interior life, therefore, exists and overflows with self-giving love. Can you see what pattern that might be setting up for our lives? This dance that gets played out, never out of step, always in perfect harmony and perfect communion. Each person fully and completely God, and yet God is not just one, but three. This is what we believe. And all three persons of this Trinity are actively and intimately involved in the creation of the world, but also all three persons of this Trinity are actively and intimately involved in the redemption of the world. We heard this in the text in Romans. Romans 8, the interplay of God the Father's plan for redemption carried out by the work of God the Son, empowered by God the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, it's one of the the, the best kind of crescendos in the Bible. The Apostle Paul has been building for the previous seven chapters to this moment. He's been talking about sin and the sinful condition that each and every single one of us finds ourselves in. And he talks about how God laid out a a plan of redemption for his people and how that plan has ultimately been fulfilled in Christ. And so chapter 8 starts out with Paul saying, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it just builds from there. The whole book is dripping with Trinity language, but in this one passage, which we heard, Romans 8, verses 14 through 17, it's really the heart of what Paul's saying. It says that for those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit that you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And in that sonship, we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are God's children, then we are indeed heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If we share in his sufferings so that we may share in his glory. God invites us into this resurrection life, which starts with this dance of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God's self-giving love, where the Father gives to the Son, and the Son gives to the Spirit, and the Spirit gives back to the Father again and again in perfect communion with himself. And that's how God saves us. We are children of God the Father, and so we cry out to him, Abba, Father. 
Why are we children of God the Father? Because we've received God the Holy Spirit. How did we receive God the Holy Spirit? Because of what God the Son, Jesus Christ, has done. He sacrificed himself so that we don't have to be sacrificed for our sins, for all the bad that we've done. But instead, not only are we not sacrificed, we're actually adopted as children of God, co-heirs with Christ. And God the Holy Spirit joins with our spirit in a way that shows us how God would have us live. He joins with our spirit, our mind, our soul, our heart, whatever you want to call it. God the Holy Spirit joins to us, and he testifies to us that we are beloved children of God. Jesus said that every single one of his sheep that the Father gave to him would be saved, and he would not lose a single one that God had given him. And so the Holy Spirit pours himself out on each and every one of God's people, and they are joined to Christ, and they are drawn into the Father's arms. They are pulled into this dance of self-giving love and communion, all one God, all three persons. The idea of God of the idea of God being three distinct persons but one being affects everything in our created world, but it also affects things that we do as God's people. It affects our view of worship. The idea of worshiping our Creator God is the primary and central thing that we do as Christians. And the reason that we know this is because it's the one thing that we do as Christians that we will continue to do after Christ comes again. When we think about coming together to worship God, think about it this way. The, the kind of worship that we bring, of glorifying and exalting God, of adoring Him, that's already happening. That is already going on within the Godhead. And so when we come together to worship God, we are invited to enter into that. And that's why this doesn't have to be perfect. That's why we don't have to make sure that every single thing that we do is exactly perfect. Because this isn't magic. It's not an incarnation. We're not calling on God to have him come down and be gracious to us. He already is. And so we come together and we bring our meager sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving and word and song and offering. And we share them, we share them with God and we say, thank you for letting us in. Thank you for inviting us into this communion, this dance that's already going on. One of my favorite writers, Sam, Al Sam Alberry, he kind of irreverently refers to the Trinity as the party that never ends. It has no beginning. It has no end. The Father did not create the Son. The Son did not create the Spirit. He always has been and always will be. The world that he made was created. And the world that he made is being sustained. And the world that he made will be made new by this perfect three-in-one God. And so what we strive for as the people of God as beings created in his image, what we strive for is that same communion. Not, not exalting ourselves, but pouring ourselves out for one another, deferring to one another, putting the other's interest in front of our own. Thomas Aquinas was a theologian who would write thousands of pages talking about the doctrines of God in, in as detailed a way as he could. He eventually said that when we deeply consider the Trinity, when we really consider the triune nature of our Creator, what can it do except drive us to our needs in awe and reverence and worship? Our God is three and He is one. He is the Holy Communion that we are invited into.
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Normally, right now, the sermon ends, and after a moment of silent reflection, we move on to the next part of the service, which is a confession of our faith, usually by using the Nicene Creed. But on Trinity Sunday, we do something a little bit different, because there are there's three creeds in the historic Orthodox Church, the Apostles' Creed, which is a baptism creed, the Nicene Creed that we say almost every week, and the Athanasian Creed. The Athanasian Creed is the least known of the one. It's the last of the three to be written, and it's something we say on Trinity Sunday. We only do it once a year because it is long. Um, if you look in your worship guide, normally... The things that the leader says are in regular print and the things that the congregation say are in bold print. In this case, everybody says the Athanasian Creed, but it's two pages. And if I bolded it, it was three pages. So we're all going to say it together, even though it's not in bold. This is, it, it's long, but it has a rhythm and it circles back on itself. And it wants to make perfectly clear who the Trinity is. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit of God. Each of them are fully God and yet... The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. So this guy Athanasius was one of the, the early guardians of the Christian faith. He was one of the people who was at the Council of Nicaea when they hammered out the Nicene Creed. And he was passionate about his defense of the Trinity in the face of a heresy that was called Arianism, which said that God the Father was eternal, but that he created God the Son, and that he created God the Holy Spirit. And at one point, Arianism was threatening to take over all of Christianity. A lot of it was out of ignorance. A lot of it was due to politics. And some of it was just due to hard-heartedness. And rather than go along with what everybody else was doing, Athanasius, basically what he said at one point was Athanasius contra mundo, or Athanasius against the world. He felt like he was the only one who was planting his flag for the historic faith. And in some ways, he kind of was. But Athanasius won. He was so dogged about it, and he was so he, he wouldn't stop talking about it. And so eventually the, the, the idea of Arianism became the heresy of Arianism. And so Athanasius, defending the historic Orthodox Christian faith, emerged on the side of right. So this thing is called the Athanasian Creed. He didn't write it. It was written a couple hundred years after he died. But it is... It has that same posture of kind of Athanasius contra mundo, Athanasius against the world, because it does not pull any punches. It starts out like this. Whoever desires to be saved, above all, must hold to the Catholic faith. Anyone who does not keep it holy and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. That is, if you don't believe in the triune God of the universe who's revealed himself in the Holy Bible, you are, sadly, outside the bounds of Christianity. And those who are outside the bounds of Christianity are simply not covered by the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And so as a result, those people will be judged according to their own deeds rather than the, the work of Christ. It may seem a little stark in a day like today to be so black and white about this. But it's important to be clear not only about the things that we believe, but about the eternal consequences of those beliefs. There was an article uh, a year ago from a, a sports writer from, who works for a, a website called The Ringer, but he's also a committed Christian. And the article was entitled, Your Neighbor is Probably a Unitarian Universalist. 
what he was basically saying was that in, in Unitarianism, it's the idea that there is one God and one person, and, and Jesus, who really did live, uh, was, was simply just a really enlightened teacher, but that he wasn't God. So that's Unitarianism. Universalism says that if there is a God, that he's eventually going to save everyone anyway. But what this writer, Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Tark, was saying is that Unitarian Universalism is not just a definable denomination, but it really is the default view of every American secularist as well. That there are many paths to get up the mountain to God, and what works for you might not work for me, but they both work equally well. And the main point of life is to do whatever you want to do as long as you don't hurt anybody and be nice. But does any of that line up with what the Bible reveals about the nature of God? And so part of the reason for the length of this creed that we're about to say, and even for its slightly kind of cyclical and repetitive nature, is the importance of not giving an incomplete picture of who God is. Because the more we get to know him, the more we're going to love him. And the more we get to know him, the more we can understand the scripture that he inspired and that it's about him. And so, even though you may have never said this before, I would invite you to stand and confess with me the truth that Christ's one church has believed for the last 2,000 years. Saying together, whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory unequal, their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, and the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, and the Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet, there are not three eternal beings, there is but one eternal being. So too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings, there is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty. Yet, there are not three almighty beings, there is but one almighty being. Thus, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Yet, there are not three gods, there is but one God. Thus, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet, there are not three lords, there is but one Lord. Just as the Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord, so Catholic forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. 
Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And in this Trinity, none is before or after, none is great or smaller than another, but in their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, we must worship the Trinity in their unity and their unity in their Trinity. Anyone, therefore, who desires to be saved must think thus about the Trinity. Furthermore, haha, it is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. Now this is the true faith, that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time, and he is human from the essence of his mother, born in time, completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humility. Although he is God and human, yet he is not two, but one Christ. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, not by the blessing of his essence, but the unity of his person. For just as one human is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. He suffered for our salvation, he descended to hell, he rose again the third day from the dead. He ascended to heaven, he sits at the Father's right hand, God Almighty, from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. At his coming, all will arise bodily and will give an accounting of their own deeds. Those who have done good will enter eternal life, and those who have done evil will enter eternal fire. This is the Catholic faith. One cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. That was a great warm-up. Now we'll do it for real. No? Okay. You may be seated.